This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. About their organization, uh, there's a lot of people who helped put this event together today, and I want to recognize their efforts. I want to thank um, Amanda and Multimedia for your help in capturing this event so people can watch this afterwards. I want to thank Troy Swanson and all the library staff to help set this up for us today. Uh, I want to thank Tamara Hill Coleman, the Democracy Commitment Coordinator, for help co-sponsoring this. And you'll notice that there's a lot going around in the library today. Uh, Mike McGuire has worked really hard uh, through the ACT OUT edu uh, through Education Fair. you notice that there's a lot of uh, groups, uh, nonprofit groups who are here. So uh, there's also going to be some student uh, presentations from 1 o'clock uh, and 2.30 today on their work on poverty. So I'm sure today you're going to get pretty fired up about uh, poverty, global poverty, uh, and the What Matters guys are going to uh, talk about their experiences. There's a lot of ways for you guys to get involved, and I hope that you, uh, you know, mingle around and, and check out some of the uh, tables outside the library. Uh, Dan, Rob, and David, the What Matters guys, are here with us today. Uh, they've been working on this project for over seven years. Uh, in that process, they've tra traveled to 15 different countries living on $1.25 uh, a day. They're very excited to be here today, and at the end of their 25-minute film, they're going to be here to uh, answer any questions and comments that you may have. So thanks again, and there's still plenty of seats up front for those who are coming in. Michelle, what we could say is that you were all sitting around one day and one of your friends says, why should I care about poor people in Africa? Your premise is to hitchhike across Africa and film what you find. Yeah, the, the really interesting thing is we're actually also hitchhiking to Africa. We're going to start in St. Louis July 5th in the morning, hitchhike to New York. We're leaving about eight days and then we're taking a plane to London. We're hitchhiking across Europe from London to Athens, Greece. And then we're flying into Kenya. None of us are extraordinarily talented people or rich people. Or we're just normal people. The whole time we'll be living on $1.25 a day for food. So we'll be living in extreme poverty. They say 1.4 billion people live on $1.25 a day. At what point do you give up? At what point in this trip, what would have to happen for you to turn back and say we're done? Seems to me uh, you probably don't know what you're up against. There is zero statistical probability you may come out of there without losing something. I went with my church to the Kibera slum in Nairobi, Kenya, a place where the average person lives on about a dollar a day. There are no paved roads, no indoor plumbing or sewage control, and the houses are made out of mud, sticks, and scrap metal. It was in many ways the Africa most of us only know from the infomercials. I shared my concerns with my friend Rob, and as I imagined, Africa was nowhere on his radar. Everyone says they care, but I just, you know, they say they care, and then you ask them what they're doing about it, and the answer is nothing. And so, how is it any worse for me to be open about the fact that my life is more important than what else, whatever else is going on? I think where I'm at is I'm being open about the fact that yeah, I, I kind of idealistically care a little bit, but when it comes down to sacrificing my life for it, I don't give a damn. But despite having varying opinions, I told him I was going to travel across Africa and go on a search to answer my questions about my responsibility to those living in extreme poverty. And for some reason, 
I invited him, and he decided to join me. I just feel like in order to have a proper opinion on things, even though I don't feel like it's my problem, I need to see it for myself. I knew if I was going to have Rob going along with me, I would need another activist who was down for anything. David was my man. I'm pretty much out for almost anything, like ever, especially if it's crazy and like really adventurous. And so when he said hitchhiking, I was like, why didn't we think of this before? This is brilliant. Let's do it. So the three of us are going to head to Africa, asking the people we meet if they feel it's everyone's responsibility to do something about extreme poverty and what they think actually works. And to really dig into this issue, we were going to have to live it. So we decided we would live ourselves just on a dollar twenty-five a day. The world standard of extreme poverty. This is our story. Well, here are the rules we set up. The $1.25 would be for food, lodging, and transportation, not counting our plane flights between continents. And we weren't forced to give up items that we already had that were crucial for the trip, such as cell phones and camping gear. And we can receive gifts from strangers, but only if they offer, and only up to one full meal a day. I just had a lot of questions that I was, I was kind of excited to have answered. Who would take us out uh, while hitchhiking, where we would eat, where we would sleep. And I just remember that day being like the hottest day ever. I'm just thinking, what are we doing? This thing is just totally going to fail. And then the next thing you know, I hear David screaming, There's a truck! He pulled over! He pulled over! I feel like when we're moving, we're living. When we're sitting still, we're dying. It's like, we're going to cook in the heat, and then when we're moving, it's like, we can do this. Making me reach, reach for the floorboard, reach for the sky, reach for the hard rocks, reach deep inside. Once in life, someone has got to go out for adventure and also to learn. On your way to Africa, I would give you a short message. Go, see, learn, come back, teach others. With the White House in the background, we interviewed Reagan Demons, who had spent many years working for one of the largest organizations trying to fight injustice in Africa. Africans are too often viewed as, as weak, poor, uh, helpless, and really they're not. I mean, there are incredibly intelligent, smart, uh, totally capable people in Africa that really are waiting for nothing more than a chance or an opportunity to, really, to, to get that last bit of knowledge they need to just flourish and to start their own entity and group. We proposed our dilemma of comparing extreme poverty against American poverty to him. I think the biggest difference is our health, the physical health. We'll, you know, we'll drink water that is clean and even Washington, D.C., which has pretty dirty pipes, I can drink out of the pipes here. So yeah. to really do it, we'd have to cut our health insurance, cut our yep. Medivac plan, Start drinking dirty water. Yeah, I'm sure you guys probably have health insurance. I'd, I'd yell at you if you don't, right? I mean, 
you'd be dumb not to have it. Reagan was just reiterating what we had already realized, that because of where we grew up, we really couldn't recreate poverty. Though our journey thus far had been difficult and not up to our usual comforts, we had stayed in abandoned buildings with couches and had come through a room in a homeless shelter. And if we couldn't experience American poverty, how much more difficult would it be for us to try and experience extreme poverty? This is practically unattainable in a country with incredible hospitals, the eradication of killer diseases like malaria, access to abundant clean running water, and government safety nets. That may be the ultimate story, that you realize that you're so blessed that you can't even recreate this situation. We tried to hitchhike. We even stopped at this like poster store and bought these sweet poster things and wrote the city name and then walked for hours and hours and miles and miles and no one even like gave us a second glance because I think their cars are like half our size. Like, there's no way I'm fitting three dudes with three bags in my car, so I'm just going to keep driving. So we were just like, all right, we got to do something else because this isn't working. At that point, we realized we would never make it to our interviews or our plane in time if we solely relied on hitchhiking in Europe. So we had to cut the transportation out of the dollar twenty-five and decided to take trains the rest of the way. When we reached Belgrade, we could see slums on the outskirts and buildings blown up by NATO. We took a quick walk around the city and then hopped a bus two hours north to Novi Sad, Serbia to meet up with our friend Veda. She told us that if we wanted to interact with poverty in Serbia, and Eastern Europe for that matter, then we wanted to interact with the Roma people, otherwise known as gypsies. Basically, they're like the marginalized uh, groups in Serbia. Um, they're very poor, and basically they have no IDs, and they don't really exist, but still they do. So they're like our local recyclers who are scavenging for food and anything they can find. I sometimes feel uh, kind of scared of them, so I, I have to admit that I don't really try to... Um, make friends with them. I kind of, when I see them, I try to stay away. While we were at the market, someone overheard us talking about visiting a Roma slum and told us where one was and that we could just walk in and ask for the president by name. We found out that they were in fact not Roma or gypsies, but the Ashkali people. The Ashkali were a people group from old Persia that came to Serbia in 700 AD and have been fighting for their rights ever since. These people in particular had come from the war in Kosovo. They're very nice, they're uh, very polite people. They can't go back to Kosovo because their house is burned down. And if they don't do this, they will not survive. They around it for the Pagetto and there are no licenses for anything that is built or sold here. It's closet. Because they're too poor to feed themselves. So I made a 
steps in my own head, like I feel like I'm just somehow fulfilled. If not, I think we change their day just by being there and telling them that we care. And I mean, that's what they said as well. So. It was incredible to hear Beta talk like this because it represented our entire mission for this project, to connect young people, to connect those who need something to live for with those who just need something to live. It was like a very, very big coincidence, or was it coincidence? That's maybe the real question. I don't believe in that Jesus nonsense. I don't believe in God, but yeah. that was just it was very a lot of coincidence. You have to, you have to admit. <laughs> a lot of that on this that trip. That was a I'm lot like, of coincidence. Nope, no God. <laughs> <laughs> my friend. They'll just keep showing up until you realize that they're not. It doesn't matter. He's there either way. Kibera had a huge significance in this story. Kibera was the first and only place I'd ever been in Africa, and the place that made me wonder, what was my responsibility to the poor? The first thing any Westerner mentions when they talk about Kibera is the welcome from the kids, especially their three favorite English words. Kibera has always been considered a legal squatter land by the government, even though it is inhabited by an estimated one-third of Nairobi's three million citizens. So there are no paved roads. Wild animals are roaming freely. And the houses are made out of mud, sticks, and scrap. We spent the day soaking in the sights and sounds of the slum, getting pinched and tackled by children, and getting a general feeling of what it was like to live there. One thing was clear, this was not the same Africa we know only through the infomercials. Uh, would you say that someone living in poverty, um, would you say that clean water is the first thing that they need in order to start advancing their life? Very first thing. Very fast. Before this well, how long would you have to go to get water? How far? Eight kilometers. Did it ever make you or your children sick? Yes, diarrhea, coughing other diseases. Very often? Every time. I, I take time to sit with my children, not wasting time of going to the river. <laughs> <laughs> Effectivity comes from yeah, coming to the people who are dealing directly with the needs. And they are able to identify them even without knowing there is money. 
And now when, when money comes, they, they, they are always working with people and they know the needs in their daily lives even without the Western support. So when Western support is like partners in what we are doing to help our own people. And we are really thankful for that. If you give a person money today, only, not skills, it can't help. But if you can invest in those people, it can be great. So I think we need an approach that would help people to see their dignity, to see what they have, and then let's come together. Those who have the knowledge, those who have the skills, those who have the technology, let's bring it together. About to hop in the plane, we shot the Camara. Um, this is our pilot, Frank. This is Ryan, sorry. He was, he's one of our mechanics. It was just a short 30-minute flight, but Rob was always a little bit anxious about planes. But after a few minutes, he started actually enjoying himself. As soon as we took off, like, it felt like I was on a roller coaster and I couldn't help but just start smiling my ass off. It was just so much fun just taking off and everything and hanging out the door, getting all that footage, and then we saw some animals down below, which is the first wildlife we'd seen in, in Africa. Kibera looked so vast, and it was just, you know, in some ways so such a hard sight to see, but in such a way such a beautiful sight to see, all the different textures and colors of the slum. Did three passes, and then... All of a sudden, we started to get lower, and before we took off, the pilot had told us that he was going to do something that enabled us to get better shots, whether it slowed the engine down. I didn't really understand exactly, but... And so when we started losing altitude and the engine started slowing down, I thought that's what he was doing, so I wasn't worried about it. I was just like, wow, this is great shots. One of the African guides with us got a phone call and turns around and says, the plane crashed. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, are they okay? Good? Bad? Not so good? Like, give me something at all. Just tell me. Two St. Louis filmmakers lived through a deadly plane crash in Africa. When their single-engine Cessna crashed into a building and burst into flames. Paris, pictured on the left, and Lair on the right, were flying over a slum near Nairobi when their plane went down. There was that moment of, oh my God, this is bad, and then two seconds later, which felt like an eternity, we hit the power lines. Bam, 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 bam. Just like we hit everything. It was like a roller coaster going off the tracks and just banging up against walls. I opened my eyes and realized I was upside down. There's blood pouring down my face. There's fire around me. I have to get out of here. Well, I got out in probably 10 seconds, but it felt like forever. And I remember waking up. Because I was hanging upside down, I felt like I was paralyzed. I felt like I couldn't move my legs. And I got out, and I looked back, and there was no one else getting out, no one else moving. So I, I looked away, and then I looked back at the plane again, and I basically thought, what you do right now matters. Next thing I know, Rob was waking me up, and he's like, the plane is on fire. The plane is on fire. You got to get out. You got to get out of here. And I'm just freaking out. And I look back and I turn around behind me and I just see flames coming in my direction. He got out, walked out, and then I looked back again and Frank and Ryan had 
not got up and I said the same inner thing like what you do right now matters you you're going back in there and by that time the fire was really starting to get bad and I look over and I watch Rob just like run into the plane once and then he like runs back out and he kind of just stares in a second and he's about to take off again I crawled back in and I remember seeing Ryan he was uh, he was strapped upside down too and so I start grabbing for a seatbelt he's upside down and all his weights holding that glass together and uh, I just finally got it off right as I did my all the fire came up and just started burning my arm and then my leg caught on fire and so just instinctually I just backed out of the plane for a second and then as soon as I backed out I planned on going back in like I don't know how but just doing whatever it took somebody grabbed me and just pulled me away and I just started screaming like we have to go back we have to go back the next thing I know these uh, two African guys are just driving us to the hospital and they hit, get on the highway, but they get on the wrong side of the highway. The next thing you know, we're driving like 50, 60 miles an hour on the wrong side of the highway. And cars are just swerving in and out of the way of us. Me and Dan just survived the worst thing that's ever happened to us. And then now we have been thrown into the second worst thing that's ever happened to us is driving the wrong way in traffic. I was obviously, you know, scared out of my mind for the lives of my friends. And uh, just prayer was what I went to. We made it to the hospital and Rob jumped on the, um, the stretcher uh, first. He was just kind of flipping out and freaking out and yelling the whole time. I saw Dan over there and he was just, he was in a lot worse condition than me. So I decided to take my neck brace off, take the thing that they put on my arm off and say, don't work on me until you get Dan taken care of. I could just like barely walk, barely stand up and just made my way to a stretcher. And then I remember just for like the next nine or 10 hours, just you know, strapped down with a, with a neck brace on and all I could see was the ceiling, you know, and like people would come up above me and just like look at me like just kind of freaked out. I walked over to him and I pulled out my phone and I just started filming and we just talked and uh, Dan recalled the event and I started crying and we, I think we both cried. My constant pain, just a good steady pain in my lower back. I don't want to move and I can't stop thinking about it. But, uh, uh, I think I'm going to be okay. We were out trying to get the guy, but he didn't come out, and two people tried to. And I figured there were so many people there that those guys would be helped by somebody who could actually move. And I was freaking out. I hope they got help. It was incredible to see my friends alive, I would definitely say. I remember David come over and hold my hand and, and me crying as I talked to him. I leaned over Dan, I grabbed his hand, and I uh, just met his eyes. He couldn't really look down or around too much, so I just got right over him. So I wanted him to know and that, that, that I was just there for him. And I, like, I would do anything for him, like I was just there, just to like, hear everything they had to say, to be there for him, so that he knew that like, I was there for him no matter what, like right there in that moment. No, dude, nothing else, nothing else mattered at all other than him. I just wanted him to feel that comfort. I was like, um, this is when I die. But I was going to die. The pilot of the plane was an American who did missionary work. He was killed in the crash. This guy, he was 35 years old. Four kids. Um, and a wife. The family emails us hoping that that his death is not in vain. Right now, the project is delayed, but the families say it will continue. So what does it take to make a difference? For us, it almost took everything. Because of the crash, Rob had to get six stitches in his head and had several burns all over his body. 
I was a good bit worse with a compression fracture in my back, a broken collarbone, and unknown intestinal injuries. We were both alive though, but unfortunately neither Frank the pilot nor Ryan the mechanic ended up surviving. Before leaving the hospital in Africa, we all decided that instead of postponing the journey, David and Tim would continue on without us and travel across our planned path through Africa. He saw all the typical things, like animals. Those are all ant bodies forming a bridge. And the physical beauty that people so often come to visit Africa for. But even better, he saw the beauty of the human person. <laughs> we don't like dirty kids in Africa, but uh, so we want to like pull them out of that, but I think we have to learn to go there and to, to be there with them, to love them. Not love the poverty, but love them. Everyone is created with certain gifts and a certain level or ability to do something. And so yes, I do think that it is everyone's job to find out what that gift is or what that talent is. Be intentional about using that. When that happens, I think the world does change. Well, if there's a generation who can do it, it's your generation. You know, the older people have major problems to change their lifestyles. And I think it's really about changing lifestyles. Young people, you still do have the will. And you have the future in your hands. So if you want a better world, you will get it. You're going to have the moments when you want to give up. If you're doing anything that has any purpose or meaning, the odds are against you. But the world needs people like you. We should all fight the war of poverty. The poor have a responsibility to take initiative, to listen, to take advice that are being given to them. Every human race is responsible for fighting poverty. So what did you guys think? 
So that's actually, the, the film uh, is actually 90 minutes, and so we cut it all down into that 20-minute version to kind of cram it into your class period. So uh, just so you know, there's a lot of other crazy stuff that happened besides that crazy stuff. So do you guys have any questions about anything in the film? Rob's got these magic fingers, and if you don't ask questions, he has the ability to make hands raise. So It's going to get awkward. Yeah. Yes, sir. Okay, so to I think to rephrase this question, let me know if it's right. How would you, basically how do you think being spending time in like slums in Africa? How does that poverty compare to some of the poverty we experience maybe in the inner city or in rural areas of America? Yeah, and what? So what was our reaction to to both of those experiences, and and how do we think we can be a part of it? So kind of a a three-parter. Um, I would say, you know, we, I think we touched on it a little bit, but this, nobody, there's like almost very small people in America that live in the definition of extreme poverty because that comes with uh, no access to clean water. And so most, in most situations we can find clean water, except for in maybe remote areas like Indian reservations or West Virginia type of things. We can go into a restaurant or somewhere and get free water or just stick our head in the faucet. And in the original version, I actually kind of make a joke out of it. And I stick my head in the toilet. Like, it looks like I make, stick my head in the toilet. Like, the, clean, the cleanliness of the water in the toilet might be cleaner than other places that people are experiencing. So that's just, like, one example of how an extreme poverty in some places in Africa might compare to extreme poverty in, say, uh, certain parts of Chicago. But in the same time, they're, they're both, they overlap a lot, I would say. And I think for us, one of the biggest experiences we realize is that extreme poverty isn't always just your material access, but it's also who do you have to fall back on? And I think in some ways, uh, people experiencing poverty in America have it worse because, you know, people in homelessness that, that don't have any family they're still connected to or have ruined those relationships because of drugs, alcohol, those type of things, they have nobody to fall back on. They have no, nobody to, to, to bring them in if something's happened. And in places in Africa, you just find this incredible community that if you are struggling, like a lot of times your community and your family will rally around you. So though you have maybe less material wealth, you have a community wealth that is almost greater than that. And I think that was something we experienced is that no matter how much we tried to experience this extreme poverty, we still had family we could call. We still had credit cards we could pull out in an emergency. We still even had health insurance uh, back in America. So we had all these kind of safety nets that a lot of people um, don't have in both situations. Do you guys want to kind of share? That's what I was going to say. That last You rocked it. It's cool. Still all their answers, yeah. There was a question back somewhere. She just yelled it. I just want to know how long your trip was. So how long was the trip? Uh, we were filming the movie for about two or three years before that, kind of doing pre-production. Uh, went out to California, did some man-on-the-street interviews in uh, southwest Missouri and St. Louis. The actual trip was July 5th. Uh, the plane crash was August 1st, and I was back in the United States within probably a week after that. 
David stayed for another two months after that in Africa. Was that right? Uh, three and a half, actually. See, I'm totally wrong. So uh, a long time, yeah. How did your life feel after that whole experience? How did our life feel after the whole experience? Immediately after the trip, my life felt like pain because I was... Uh, it feels like burning. It feels like hurts. Uh, pain hurts bad is a very deep statement there. But I actually, when you see the, the full film, you'll see that it took me about nine months to recover. I ended up losing 45 pounds. I had fractured my L3 vertebrae. It crunched about 40%. But the real damage is that the seatbelt, it damaged my intestines. And as it tried to heal, like scar tissue kind of got it all kinked up. And so basically my intestines were like I, someone kinked a hose. And so like something, stuff could barely move through. I had to like eat baby food and drink shakes. And I was in and out of the hospital about five or six times. And finally I did this, took this pill that has a camera inside of it. And it takes pictures of your intestines as it goes down. And mine got stuck. And... uh so, the, you know, the doctor's like, did it ever come out? And I'm like, I never saw it, you know. And so we go and we get an x-ray and they take an x-ray and there's just like a big jelly bean in my stomach. And so they were like, oh, that's where your block is. So they went in and they cut in 10, ten inches of my intestines out. And um, then they put it back together and I was able to gain that weight back and, and do really well. So that immediate time was, was really, was very difficult. It was actually much harder than the journey for me. I would say there were a couple different elements uh, in terms of just coming back that you wrestle with. One is, for me at least, I uh, was actually judgmentalism of other people, um, even actually specifically Christians, even though I still considered myself one. I was very judgmental um, of other Christians, just saying, how can you live the way that you are when people are living in extreme poverty? So that was something I had to wrestle through a lot and also realized that I was being a hypocrite because the Bible that I say I believe in calls me not to judge. I was like, dang. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so that was, that was, you know, one element of, and just feeling like, yeah, no one really understands, you know, what you had just gone through and the ways that you were transformed. But then at the same time, uh, I was also able to celebrate kind of just um, a complete, like, reprioritization of what I thought was important before going on this trip and then, meeting people that loved me better than I loved the members of my own family and just realizing that it's not about money or material possessions that give us fulfillment and happiness, but it's more so about the people around us. So, yeah, I was also set free in a lot of ways. <sighs> For me, it was a little bit different of an experience. Like, uh, I wasn't as hurt in the plane crash, but my brain was just messed up. I tried to go back in and get the other guy out after trying to get, after getting Dan out. And I pretty much watched him burn to death. I don't know if it really got into that in this in this cut, but that stayed with me for three months. Like, I just could barely even function. Uh, I wasn't sleeping a whole lot. And it took me those three months to just get to a point of, okay, I can start tackling this. I started watching the footage of, of the plane crash and trying to just face it head on. Uh, and after that, it was about a year-long process of kind of picking up the pieces and, and just figuring everything out. And then slowly I started to try and turn all that negative energy and that fear of death into a positive thing. I think I'm at a point now where uh, I bought a, a foreclosed house after that. I don't think that's in this cut. And then I ended up building this giant Nerf battlefield in my backyard. Um, this community that I've created has like 150 to 200 people that we play every other week where we just get together and drink beer and then shoot each other with Nerf guns. And it's just covered in art everywhere. My whole house is covered in murals. And so it's just like... It's that energy going towards good things, and rather than worrying about I'm going to die, uh, worrying about I need to live, you know. 
Have you guys been back to any of the places that you guys visited? David, you want to talk a little about what you do? <laughs> um, yeah, let's see. I've been back to Uganda. We met a girl. I don't think she's in this version. A girl named Katie Davis who uh, wrote a book called Kisses from Katie. And she's like 24, and she's adopted 14 girls. She's lived in, in Uganda for the last five years. Um, so... Yeah, we met her during this during the filming of this. I did and spent a couple of days with her and <laughs> got close to like marrying her almost. Got <laughs> still in the process of us, you know, figuring out what <laughs> what a relationship might look like. But um, she's amazing, and so I've I've been back to visit her once in 2011, so two years later, and I've actually gone back um, to Malawi. It wasn't a specific place that we went to during the filming of this documentary, but um, I've started a ministry called When the Saints, like When the Saints Go Marching In, and uh, we I'm actually going in like less than two weeks to open up a home we've been building for the last two years that will do counseling and vocational training for teenage girls who have been sexually abused and forced into prostitution. And we also are going to do mentorship and discipleship with the men who are uh, engaging themselves in the, the abuse of these teenage girls to help them get set free uh, from you know, their addiction to sexual abuse. And so, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm going, I've been going back you know, regularly. And you guys can check out the website if you want, just winthesaints.com. And we're actually making a, a follow-up documentary about what David's doing and about what Rob's doing. So if you go to Win the Saints, you'll see the trailer for the Win the Saints film, which will be touring around the country this summer. And then uh, we're making a film called Thunderdome, and you can see the trailer for that. Um, you have to actually get on our email list because that isn't like public yet, but we can share you the trailer for that documentary. Uh, hi. Uh, I just kind of wondered if you would address, uh, when you think of Africa, a lot of times what's portrayed in the news is the political unrest, the wars. And, you know, to me that spells fear. So how, address, did you have fears being where you were of, you know, something, well, besides the crash, something happening politically that you wouldn't be able to get out of or anything like that? I was afraid of everything pretty much the entire trip. Uh, you're going to get a very different response from David in that, and I think that's I, – I, I really believe I had PTSD before I left the United States. So pretty much a week into it of living on the streets, kind of like sleeping in cornfields and constantly feeling like we're going to get robbed or killed, that was pretty rough. And that was like the safest place. You know, we're in the United States. We haven't even been to the bad parts of the world yet where I'm, I should really be afraid. And then we get a plane crash, so figure that into it. Um, with uh, I don't I didn't really know about the civil unrest. I didn't, Africa was just there's so much diversity in the on the culture and just everything in every country is its own own little situation. So I really didn't worry about all of that um, just because I knew that there, it's case by case basis. When you get there, you'll you'll deal with it. David's probably got a better explanation for that. I like I like chime in too. Like one thing is that Africa is just massive. Like actually, it doesn't. There's a thing called the Peters map that shows that. Our typical globe doesn't represent how large and huge Africa is. So it's so so diverse. And, like, people have a lot of times, even problems with our family, we just kind of throw Africa in there because there's, it's so different. You know, you even got sub-Saharan Africa and, regular, uh, you know, uh, northern Africa, which are very, very different. And then even country to country is different. And I think one way to compare it is it, 
St. Louis, where we're all from, is a lot of times ranked one of the most dangerous cities in the whole country, and we all live there, you know, and people who would hear that would think like, oh, man, you probably barely walk without somebody shooting at you or something there, and people might think about that at like certain parts of Chicago, like, oh, you can't live in all of Chicago, and they don't realize how massive it is and how diverse it is and how you realize what areas you probably should avoid if you can and that kind of thing, and I think Africa's the, you know, most of Africa is pretty much the same way. Most of it, even now, is at peace in general, and is really growing, and um, most of the areas, I mean, David went to the Congo and the Sudan, but even at those times, I mean, he wasn't in any areas with actually kind of combat and civil unrest um, going on, I would. One place, when when we were in the Congo, we left, and they, they had actually said, like, 20 minutes after we left, um, some rebels came into that city that we were in. We don't know exactly, it was like a 700,000 person city, again, like Dan was saying, you know, certain certain places can be more dangerous in a specific city, and even in, you know... Uh, in a specific country, and so we, oh yeah, we never really saw political unrest. When I've been in Malawi, there was, two years ago, there was uh, this crazy amount of political unrest with the president, um, and I actually got arrested, and I was, like, held in jail for four hours, and one of my really good friends got the crap beat out of him. Uh, I have not heard a about local this. African. You haven't? No. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I don't let fear, uh, you know, be something that dominates, you know, my decisions, so. Yeah, there's, in the longer cut, there's a scene where we talk about that fear, and some guy basically tells us that we're going to get our arms cut off when we go to Africa, and he's, he, like, sits us down, and he's like, I don't think you guys know what the heck you're doing, you're going to get your limbs cut off, and it's this great scene where Rob's all scared, and David's like, everything's going to be fine, and, um, but... You know, I talk in there, and I think that fear keeps people from making a difference. And a lot of things, they don't go to places because they, they hear stories about them, like North St. Louis and East St. Louis and St. Louis are places that people talk about and don't visit and have moved out of. But a lot of ways, there's, especially if you're working with an organization that already has a, a relationship there, that it's one of the most joyful things is to get involved in these areas that, that really need help, really need people to overcome that fear and those kind of stigmas that they've gotten and enter in there and partner and bring... Um, services or skills or opportunities that, that may not be there already. So how would someone be able to be a part of the, you know, poverty to help change? We need to answer that. How, how, can, how can someone be a part of making a difference in poverty? I was really skeptical of just all the uh, methods of helping in the past. Everyone's just like, give me money so we can do this thing. And you're like, do you really do that thing? Are you really, is all that money going towards the cause you're helping? And so what really made what made a lot of sense for me is uh, microloans. Are you guys familiar with that? Basically, it's someone uh, in, in poverty or just in, in, a, in a situation applies for a loan of anywhere from about $1,000 to $3,000 and says, I want to start a business selling soda, selling, making scarves, and this is my plan, and I want this much money. And then people online can donate uh, anywhere from like $25 up to the full amount, full amount and loan them that money for a year or a year and a half. Uh, what I like about that is you can give them your money, and they usually pay it back. I've done probably about 20 of them, and I've only had two or three default. And then you get your money back after that. And so it's one of those you're, you're helping people, you're empowering them to, with their decisions. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that's a great place to start. Uh, Kiva.org is a great place to look into that. I did that for about two, three years, and then I just felt like it was a little bit too impersonal for me. And I was just like, oh, I'm clicking on all these loans, and I don't really have the time to reinvest this money. And so I started doing other things. Like I monetized my YouTube account 
uh, with with ads. And you know, over the course of a year, I make anywhere from a thousand dollars to three thousand dollars. And I um, I don't know if it's in this cup, but what, our guide in Africa, his name's Tony. He started an AIDS testing facility. And what I did is I took a thousand dollars and funded his facility for a calendar year, and was able to be responsible for uh, having I think three four hundred people get tested for HIV in, in Nairobi. So little things like that. I think the the answer is going to be different from all of us, and the answer will be different of the best way to do it. But I think Dan's got some ways to. Yeah, so a couple of things I'd like to say is, one, is that all three of us, and even uh, Dave's brother, cameraman, are all community college graduates. We all went to community college ourselves. And um, and I think uh, Rob says really early on the film that there's like, we're, we're nobody special. Like, well, really, what we hope you don't get out of this is that, oh, these guys are great people and that kind of thing. It's like, no, we're just like you guys, community college, grew up in the suburbs, and um this, you know, just kind of decided to face some of those fears and try to get out there and do something. And I don't know if you saw it at the end of the film, but it said, ask yourself two questions. What breaks your heart? Like, what in this world are you like, that should not be this way? And then what makes you come alive? What do you just love doing? What are you good at? What are you talented at? What, when you do it, like, time just flies by? Then how can you take what breaks your heart and what makes you come alive and put those two things together? So we really believe over the seven years of working on this, that's, that's kind of the message we developed, is that at that intersection is where you find out your purpose. And I think more than just, hey, donate to this organization, it's like think about how you were made and how you were created and what your desires are and the things that are made to break your heart. So for, for each of us, something different breaks our heart and something different makes us come alive. And uh, like for myself, what breaks my heart is young people looking for a purpose and not being able to find it. And when there's so many people out there that just need their help, like one of our statements is to connect those who need something to live for with those who just need something to live. And then what I love doing is public speaking and making movies. And so that's what my company does. And so I think the way for you to fight poverty is to really answer those good questions because those specific things, you're going to build a nonprofit or you're going to volunteer in a very specific way that I think will go a lot longer than you giving kind of $10 here and $20 there. I would say two things, too. Uh, the first one is once you kind of discover, you know, most of us probably have something that does break our heart in the world. Um, one of my favorite quotes, it just says, you know, uh, if you see something that's wrong in a community or, or in the world, like go and live among the people that are going through that and love the people and learn what it is that they have access to and build on that. And of the best leaders, when their task is complete, the people will remark, we've done this ourselves. And so uh, I would encourage, you know, everyone to go to some country in the world that might be, you know, a developing nation that has, you know, a crazy low, like, GDP or whatever it might be, um, going through some kind of specific injustice or whatever it might be that you want to learn about. Um, but don't just have it theoretically be this idea in your mind, like, man, it sucks that people go through that. Like, go and meet the people and fall in love with them, you know, and become friends with them. Because uh, I think it's much more likely um, to want to help someone or have this sustainable motivator inside of you to help someone when you know it's like, man, my friend Jack is like not able to eat today and I want to do whatever I can to help him, you know, him get fed. And then that'll um, be something that motivates you. Because another thing is, you know, one thing that I observed just while I was interacting with a ton of people living in extreme poverty. They, they weren't, some people would, but most of them that I, I became friends with weren't like, hey, so when can you, like, you know, pay for my lunch? Or, you know, can you give me 10 bucks? Or, like, all they wanted, all they would ask me is, when can you come back again? When can I see you, you know? Like, all they cared about was the relationship that I had developed. That's, that was their priority. It wasn't even looking out for themselves, you know, or uh, preservation for them or making sure that they had what they needed. 
And so I just I think that what they really want isn't just for us to give them stuff and think that money is the solution to everyone's problems in the world, but what they desire is that human connection. I think we have time for like maybe two questions. One or two questions. Hi. Um, I'm a filmmaker myself, and I uh, appreciate your film very much. I'd like to see the, the full-length version. Um, I had a couple questions that are sort of interrelated. Um, one is... If you're, in part, I guess your your purpose was to to show the poverty and to motivate people to do something about it. Um, but then, when you see people uh, being happy and joyous, you think, well, you know, well, maybe they're okay. We don't need to help. You know, they're uh, they're so so they have a few you know bits of garbage. And um, so, I mean, I was if at any point that kind of conflict came in your mind and uh two do you ever uh it may be in the longer discuss structural problems like the multinational corporations uh the history of colonialism and in particularly africa and 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 how that has really been something that is uh that has caused a lot of the problems in the full version, there's actually a great line. I, I, I'm sure just because you're asking the question, it wasn't in this version. But one of the airline pilots uh, from uh, the company that was responsible for the plane crash, he talks about how at one point he flew this rich man across the country, and he was talking about him and how he saw this happiness within the people. And he said, that, oh, they're happy, so I don't need to help them. And he said that was a great tragedy because the, pe the guy who had the most – ability to change people's lives and to share in their happiness, use that as an excuse to not do it. And I just thought that was such a powerful kind of concept, you know? I think it misses, like, this idea that, yeah, help out because it's an opportunity. You know, like, you see them, like, you partnering with them, that's something you're going to find incredible joy in. And, like, your, both your joys are going to kind of meet and then build that relationship. So we really hope that joy is a motivator for people making a difference, not, oh, they're happy. I was only going to help them because I felt bad that they were, you know, whatever, had kids with flies on them. But really help because you're going to come alive you know it's like it's going to really bring life to to you and then as far as your questions about do we touch on the history of colonialism and um neocolonialism the impact of multinational corporations and stuff like that like that was all kind of the, the original motivator this was going to be like an educational film we we're going to interview experts and this and that and then we realized we really want to make more of a common person type film uh and one of our goals was to eventually build some kind of educational curriculum that used a lot of our interviews and that type of stuff but it just kind of Financially and other reasons, we just have never gotten a chance to, to build that, that project. But, yeah, I think colonialism for me was the, one of the biggest single factors that led to the, the disparity between in the world. Yeah, I would just add one more thing. Um, I, don't, I don't think that we should try to be motivated to help people because they need it. And like, oh, they need me and I have the solution and I'm their savior because that's very arrogant. I think when we come in humbly and see that they actually maybe can offer us something and they can actually set us free from our own apathy or our own selfishness and our own priorities of things that aren't going to give us joy and we can actually be invited into the best possible way of living where we're living for something much bigger than ourselves and something greater you know and outside of ourselves and we can see it as this kind of thing that we we both are you know have our needs met ours emotionally and theirs maybe physically unfortunately we we are out of time but uh the guys will be over at their table with their contact list if if you'd like to speak to them more um, please do so if you could join me in thanking uh dan rob and david if you're interested in seeing the whole film you can contact us at what matters film and gmail 
or sign up on the email list and just say that you're interested in seeing the whole film. We'll figure out a way to get it in your hands. Thanks, King Gus. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library.